Support for Starting Small comes from Human Scale, the leading designer and manufacturer of high-performance ergonomic products that help create a healthier work life. All of the products from chairs to standing desk and more are comfortable, easy to use, and sustainable, and great for either the office or the work from home environment. With an increase in shifting workplaces, comfort can be especially hard to find. As I run the podcast, I'm in front of my desk for hours a day, from scheduling, researching, interviewing, and more. Human Scale allows me to remain productive without the consequence of body stress to follow. Make sure to check out Human Scale at humanscale.com and use code STARTINGSMALL at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. That's code STARTINGSMALL at humanscale.com and enjoy the episode. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan B. Levine, New York's top aesthetic dentist and founder of JBL New York City. Following his time at Cornell University, Dr. Levine has made innovation the backbone of his work by creating Glow Science, Glow Good Foundation, formulating Twice Toothpaste, writing a textbook for NYU School of Dentistry, and much, much more. Before the episode begins, I'd like to mention that there are some points of sound reduction in the audio. Other than that, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan B. Levine of JBL New York City. He's a dentist, an innovator, entrepreneur, and much more. And what's interesting about our connection is I got connected to Doc actually through this podcast with his son, Julian Levine. He's the CEO of Twice Toothpaste, and it's a true honor to have you on, Doc. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's great to be here, Cameron, and uh, excited to, uh, to be able to uh, connect with you. Thank you so much. So to get things started out, I'd like to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, well, I grew up um, outside of New York City on the south shore of Long Island. And as the Long Islanders call it, it's one word, Long Island. Um, mm. Very, very specific uh, accent that comes off of that island, I must say. And um, I had a, I had a really fun childhood. I have a fraternal twin brother, so you know it's like you always have your pal around, uh, <laughs> horsing around. And I was very fortunate in that I was in this Limbrook school district where academics was really important, but so was athletics. So yeah. you know, way back in the day, it was the notion of uh, do well in school, but also um, you know, you had the opportunity to do other things outside of school, like, like athletics. Absolutely. So knowing that you played lacrosse in college, is this also what you engaged in through your grade school years or what sports did you play? Yeah. You know, we started, um, you know, if you didn't play two or three sports in that high school, cause it was a little bit of a smaller high school and athletics was important on Long Island. And one of the big sports on the island uh, is lacrosse, which the hotbed at that time was lacrosse in the Baltimore area. So uh, I played soccer, I wrestled, I played lacrosse. Um, and it's it's a spring sport, lacrosse, so you can play football or soccer. Um, I wrestled for a number of years, but then it was a lot of weight, losing weight. And as soon as I stopped wrestling, I grew about five inches. So I thought that was a pretty smart move. and. Uh, and then, you know, started with lacrosse as early as um, sixth grade. 
today now the kids start as early as third and fourth grade. But wow. you know, it's a kind of sport you want to develop your st stick skills, just like hockey mm -hmm. or shooting your basket. So you, the earlier you start, the better. Absolutely. So along with your upbringing, what were your parents like? Where did they work? What did they do for their occupation, etc.? Yeah. My dad was, uh, he taught me what a work ethic is all about. He worked really hard supporting the family. Uh, he was in one of the older industries of our country, which is the fur trading business. And back then, it um, was a lot, of, a lot of Jewish merchants, and then uh, a lot of the Greeks went into the fur industry. And it was uh, an interesting industry, um, one that was very fragmented, uh, fairly disorganized, um, and he had to work really hard to support the family. So I, I saw from my dad a very strong work ethic, and he did a lot of traveling uh, to, to be successful. Um, so my mom, who was all about living for the children and getting a great education and, and, and driving home that ethic of, of learning, and do well in school, would a lot of times, you know, leaning in as the mother role and also trying to fill the spot where my dad was doing a lot of traveling. Um, so, uh, but it was a, you know, very much a loving household. And my grandparents, my mom's parents lived with us a lot of the time. Um, and so that was uh, an interesting dynamic. I had great grandparents on my mom's side that I got to know extremely well. Awesome. So I'm kind of curious, where did you get this passion for dentistry then? If no one in your family was truly in that occupation at the time, where did this inspiration come from? Yeah. So it's interesting. My family uh, has doctors in it. Uh, my okay. uncle, Harry, was a physician down in Galveston. My father was an identical twin. And my father actually had a brother and sister who were fraternal twins. So twins ran in our family. Wow. And my brother and I were twins. And it was interesting. Their generation were furriers and doctors. Now, my grandfather, coming out of Poland and, you know, leaving all of the persecution that was happening in Eastern Europe at the time um, was a, a professor. But when he came to the United States, uh, he didn't finish school all the way. They wouldn't let him finish. And he ended up to support the family being a carpenter. My grandfather used to work in the house and doing all kinds of things around the house. And he used to watch him working with his hands. And I think helping my grandfather work with the hands, I, I developed a passion for that. And, uh, and so fast forward, I went to Cornell as, uh, to play lacrosse and I was a microbiology major. And because of my dad's business, the fur business, which it always seemed like there was conflict and argument and people owing each other money, I, I assumed that that's what business was all about. Yeah. So, I always talk about the conversation around the dinner table, you know, conversation we all grow up and the, the parents don't have to say much, but you just got to listen as a kid and kids listen. And so for, sure. for me, it was very instructive, right? Of, well, I don't really think I like business and I was a science guy and um, 
I was doing some research at Cornell and I was considering staying on and being more of an academic. And then um, I felt that dentistry, not medicine, because I didn't like hospitals and I, that whole life and death, the dentistry would be a very interesting field that I could work with my hands and also be within that kind of medical healthcare arena. And so yeah. that's, that's when I went after, with not knowing too much about it, but I, I felt that it would be interesting. Awesome. So also on the idea of Cornell and lacrosse, did you join on scholarship or did you walk on? What was that like? Yeah, no, it was really interesting. So my junior year, back then, my junior year, um, Cornell played Maryland in the national championship. It was the first actual national championship. It used to be a voter voting for the best team in the country. And my brother and I were juniors, and that summer we met the coaches at a, at a lacrosse camp, which are very big today. But back then there was only a couple of them. And we went to this camp out on Long Island. I met my coach, Richie Moran, who was coaching Cornell. And he met a, a coach named Bud Beardmore, who was coaching Maryland. And when we watched that national championship game, my brother says to me after the game, I'll never forget, he goes, I want to go to Maryland. And I looked at him, I said, you know, I want to go to Cornell. And we ended up meeting those coaches. I ended up getting recruited for Cornell. He ended up getting recruited from Maryland. He went to Maryland. I went to Cornell. And the amazing story is that fast forward four years, exactly to that day, Cornell played Maryland in the national championship game. We were both seniors. Wow. We both had undefeated teams. And the story I love to tell is that before the game, 15 minutes before the game, my mom, who is this big Jewish mommy, down <laughs> on the field, getting lacrosse balls whizzing through, past her head. I go running up to her. I go, Mom, get up in the stands. You're going to get hurt. It was the first lacrosse game ever to be televised. Wide World of Sports. Frank Gifford, who did the color for Wide World of Sports back then, was watching his first lacrosse game. Camera, cameras were all on on the sidelines. It was at Brown University in Providence in the big football stadium. Most people ever looking back then, 16,000 people. Oh, wow. And I said, Mom, what are you doing? Get up in the stands. She goes, I'm so nervous. I go, Mom, what are you nervous about? She goes, I'm so nervous. I don't know what side of the field do I sit on. Do I sit on the Maryland <laughs> side or do I sit on the Cornell side? And I pointed up to the Cornell side. I said, you go up to the Cornell side because we will be winning this game. <laughs> so, so double overtime, a nail biter. We, Cornell did end up winning. It was a crazy game. And uh, it was quite, a, quite an interesting finish for a career because back then there was no professional across. We'd play a little club after that. But that was it. And uh, bragging rights for the rest of my life with my twin brother because it was a squeaker. We came out on time. Wow, that's that's amazing. So, what was the coming week after that that win? The relationship between you and your brother were you guys kind of arguing back and forth, or did you guys get over that situation? Or how how did that turn out? Um, it, it, yeah, no, no, you know, he he, uh, he knew all the guys on my team, and I knew all the guys on his because I, we would go down uh, over the spring break. So everybody kind of knew each other. And it was a great, it was a, a crazy great game. But um, 
Yeah, no, it, it ended up great. Um, you know, it was one of those games that uh, we were the better team that day. Um, and it, looking back, you know, my teammates are some of my closest friends today. You know, we uh, we had an interesting career at Cornell because freshmen had to play freshmen. And then our sophomore year, we lost in the quarterfinals to Maryland. My junior year, we lost the semifinals to Navy that we beat during the year. And we felt like we really had to win it as seniors. And we yeah. ended up and our coach, Richie Moran, was a is a fiery Irishman. Richie is a very special, special guy. He's like the John Wooden of lacrosse, where um, he's, a, he's, he, he's a legend in the game. He's won the best coach, legend coach for years. He calls his players twice a month at least. So you wow. imagine 30 years of coaching all these players, and we're all very close. It's a very interesting big family of the Big Red at Cornell. And he gave a lot to his, his players of things more than just lacrosse, about yeah. loving your teammate, loving your family, about all the core values that, you know, we all want our children to have. And uh, it was very, it changed my life, being at Cornell, playing lacrosse at Cornell, and being able to be at an institution like that um, with the teammates I had was very special, very special. For sure. Following Cornell and building up this hard work ethic, you went on to Boston University Goldman School of Dentistry. I was wondering, was this immediately following your undergrad or when was this? So dentistry, I, I ended up, we won a national championship and then I ended up, because I was thinking maybe get a PhD in biochem and immunology and I spent a year studying to get a master's and then a couple months in I said, you know what, I'm going to I want to go to dental school. And uh, so then I went to dental school the next year. So I stayed up at Cornell. I really had a lot of fun that extra year because we just won the championship. We were having fun. And I was doing some research and studying a little. Um, but in the following year, I went up to Boston, Boston University, which is the Golden School of Dentistry, a really special dental school because it's a postgraduate dental school. It's known for its specialty programs where people would study to become a orthodontist, a periodontist, an endodontist, you know, and uh, the pre-doctoral class was very small. It was really a very unique place of learning. And also I'm very, I'm very close to both institutions, to Cornell after I graduated and, uh, and also to Boston University Goldman School. I stay very active with the school as, as an alumni um, and very fortunate to have gone there uh, to get my DMD degree. Yeah, so what made you choose Boston then for your dentistry degree? Yeah, so I applied to a bunch of different schools. I got into Tufts, I got into uh, BU, NYU, but I love the town of Boston um, and I love going up there. And what ended up happening 20 years later is I was chairman of the board of the dental school for about three years, still very involved on the board. Um, and it's a very unique school. Um, so I, I think I made... A, a, a great choice. I ended up getting out of BU, practicing for about four or five years, and then going back to school to specialize. Everybody, you go to BU, you become a specialist. That's kind of the mindset. And then I went to NYU to get my, what's called my postgraduate prosthodontics. And prosthodontics is kind of the 
is the right arm to the left arm of periodontic. So perio, you go in to place implants and to control kind of the support of the tooth. And then restoring teeth and creating smiles and reconstructions falls in the prosthodontic world, which is what I love to do because it has a big artistic creative side. So I went into prosthodontics uh, about four or five years later. So I graduated my pros, and it was around 1990 uh, when I opened up my practice. Wow. So following this degree then, did you ever get experience in an existing practice uh, prior to JBLNYC? Um, so at JBLNYC, you know, it was interesting. In the four, four years, five years before I did my, my uh, pros at NYU, I was working in a general dentist office. Okay. And... Uh, because as, at 26 years of age, I met a technician with a very heavy, heavy Romanian accent <laughs> when I just started working and I was working in the city. And this technician, his name is Adrian Gerald. And I literally picked him out of a magazine in an advertisement because he had a laboratory called McAndrews Northern. He comes over and he's talking to me. He's my age. He's about 26, 27, and he tells me that he's been working on a process where he, they figured out how to bond porcelain to teeth. This is 1982. Wow. And in 1982, myself and one other guy becomes the first dentist to place what's known today as a porcelain veneer on, on, on a patient's mouth. Now, wow. you fast forward that one. And, and that's like, I was fortunate to meet Edison. I was fortunate to meet Einstein because this technician, Adrian, who was, became such a dear friend to me and his children are very close to me. They went into dentistry and we lost Adrian three years ago, unfortunately, to cancer. Mm. But he, he was legendary and he helped catapult my career because then I brought that technique to this office I was working in. And after I was working in this office, I decided I had to also specialize, but I, I, I built, started to build a practice already, even before I did my prost, my yeah. prosthodontics. And so when I came out of the program, I, I, I never looked back. I took a space on Fifth Avenue. I was able to cobble money together, borrow from my in-laws, <laughs> buy this space, and uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I shared the space with a colleague of mine, and then two years later, I took over the whole space. It's a it's a duplex on Fifth and Seventy Third, and uh, and we started. We started. I uh, had my postgraduate education, and I had a little bit of a following already from from where I was in Westchester. <laughs> and I became known for aesthetics uh, in New York City at a very young age. Wow, that's amazing. So at the at the launch date for JBL NYC, what initial roles uh, were offered, such as team size, and what did you offer patients starting out? Yeah, my, my focus was was very much around combining function with mm -hmm. aesthetics. And as a postgraduate prosthodontics, we learned a lot about 
how teeth come together. That's the function. We call it occlusion. And so we would combine those two. I met a young dentist who joined me a few years later named Jeff McClendon. And Jeff and my core team, we've all been together almost 30 years. Jeff is someone focused on function and I was focused on aesthetics. And we always put these two thoughts together. We've written articles and, and uh, books for dentistry together. And we ran a program at NYU together. And we really focused on kind of this complete health of the mouth. And I, over the last few decades, I've become very focused on driving the, the diagnostics in the dental office for overall health. When we say oral health is, is health care because mm -hmm. people go to the dentist much more than they go to their doctors and it's the first yeah. line of defense. And so if we can make sure that we can take blood pressure, we can do salivary diagnostics and see if there's inflammatory markers, if there's inflammation in the mouth, we can have an impact because there's a connection between inflammation in the mouth and inflammation in the rest of the body. And today, this is uh, 15, 16 years of very good research. There are 120 inflammatory diseases in the body that are linked to inflammation in the mouth. So with that in mind, we really use the cleaning hygiene room with the hygienists who are so, so skilled at communication to our patients to really diagnose and make sure our patients are healthy and their mouths are healthy. And that's where the practice has evolved to. No. Got it. Yeah. So also starting out, did you ever find it difficult to differentiate your practice, especially considering your location in NYC? Yeah, you know, for me, it was always about, and I learned this as, uh, as an athlete, it was always about newness. It was always about pushing the envelope. It was always about the opposite of the status quo, right? Yeah. Be, be creative. I mean, you see a great athlete, you know, if you see a LeBron or, or Michael Jordan and you see the creativity of how they play, it's the same way in every industry. Whether you're an artist, whether you're a musician, whether you go into healthcare, whether you're a, a plastic surgeon, it's how do I do things new and better and improve upon what I already know? And so for me, that was my mindset. And as, as I dug into this industry, personally, I always felt I needed to reinvent it. I always felt that it was an industry that was very fragmented, that most of the guys who went into it had that status quo thinking. And so <laughs> I'm known for someone who likes to take risk. I'm known for somebody who lives in innovation because um, that's where my mindset is. And it really came very much out of athletics because I realized when you think like that, you win. Whether you win for the sport, you win for your teammates, you win for the love of the coach, you win for the love of your patients, it, it translates. And, yeah. uh, and it makes you excited, right? It makes you excited about waking up in the morning and feeling, you know, feeling super productive and, and feeling like there's purpose in what you do. And so that's Absolutely. something that, right, that happened, you know, you figure that out over time, you know, as you go through your career, because I always love to say, I talk to young Dennis about this is where you begin is not where you end up, right? It's the journey we take and it's all about the people and the who 
that we we decide to go on the journey with. Absolutely. Yeah. So considering JBL um, and your career focusing on aesthetics, you went on to also create Glow Science, uh, which is a mouth whitening piece that truly revolutionized teeth whitening today. I was wondering what inspired you to invent this product while also working at your practice full time. Yeah. Well, the company before that was called Go Smile. And mm -hmm. I had a little whitening delivery system that I, you know, I would do. Uh, I was starting to do a lot of TV back then. I was on the TV show called The View and I brought them new technology. I was showing them the latest lasers, the latest photography. And I asked the producer, can I bring my little whitener? Uh, it was called mm -hmm. Enhanced. And, and it would look like almost like a cigarette and you squeeze the ampule and the it was hermetically sealed hydrogen peroxide that would work its way to the tip and you could use it as literally a mini eraser for stain. Well, I get off the show and I got hundreds of phone calls and I realized that people thought it was a good idea. And we started a company based on that called Go Smile that we ended up building out products. We had seven patents. We sold the company in 2008. And then by 2012, we had new inventions and we started close science. So for me, it was the thinking that, hey, I have my practice and I have my teammates in my practice, right? My people who worked with, with me and, and my other specialists, because it was all about the patient. But I love the, the, the ability to be creative in other areas. And so starting these companies, it kind of fulfilled the dream that that business wasn't this this business of conflict that I thought it was as a young person listening around the dinner table, but actually one of athletics where you put a team together and you create a high performance team that really truly love each other and have each other's back and share the values that what you think is important. And you, and you put a big vision up there out there like I want to win a national championship game. You uh, you say to yourself, you know, I, I see a vision. I, I, want, I have a, a medical device. I think this mouthpiece with light and heat in it can amplify formulations and create a, a successful whitening technique. And that was the genesis of both science. Wow. So it's so, back to the yeah. mindset, the creative mindset. To the listeners out there, can you kind of explain how this mouthpiece then works? The heat activated mouthpiece uh, to ultimately whiten the teeth. Yeah. So as a clinician, but also coming off of product development from Ghost Smile, you know, you look at things a certain way. And once you understand the compromises that exist in the marketplace, and as a clinician seeing what whitening was like in the professional office, you knew what some of those compromises were. One of the big compromises were these whitening lights, the company called Zoom back then, and now owned by Philips, but it stood outside the, the mouth. You got very good results, but people would have a tremendous amount of pain because the light heated the teeth too much. The other technique was tray and gels. You put gel in the tray, it's still around, people wear it for a couple hours or even overnight, and again, you'd have a high level of sensitivity, and it took a very long time to get results. So what I did was I was riding my bike one day and you know, when you're on your bike and you go out for a run, you're kind of yeah. free thinking, right? There's flow in your thinking. You're not getting a lot of people talking to you. You're not getting distracted with a phone call. 
and I yeah. got off my bike and I drew out a mouthpiece, which is basically a tray. But I said, let's put the light and heat inside the mouthpiece and let's control the temperature so the teeth don't get too hot. And that was it. I drew out the glow mouthpiece on, on a piece of paper that then became a prototype that then we ended up starting a company. And I, I learned how to start a company from the one before and know that the one before I probably made almost every mistake you could make, but that's what you do with companies. You, you sure. learn and you play it forward and you take those learnings and you turn them into, into really important learnings as you move to, to a new company and, and failure needs to be embraced not to beat yourself up about it, but really you want to fail because if you're not failing, you're not taking the risk. Because taking the risk, right? Stepping over the boundaries is what it's all about. And so at Glow, we started a company that we ended up today with um, over 25, 26 patents, just got another one. And it was building these medical devices with delivery systems that work conjunctively. And now we have a lightning division, we have a therapeutic division that prevents inflammation, and we're about to launch our orthodontic division in GLOW for amplifying and accelerating aligners. And we have a wonderful team. It's a self-managed business. I have a great team. I'm very involved on the innovation side, of course, and, and, and a number of the business development things. But it, you know, I'm very proud of it. It took a long time to get to this point. And uh, what I found out is that anything worth worthwhile in life takes a long time. Nothing happens overnight. And uh, sure. it take, you know, it, it, it's that journey that you take and figuring out who you need to work with over time to get to a certain point. For sure. So you have established many recognizable connections. Uh, one I'd like to highlight is your connection to Dr. Oz in which you actually presented the glow mouthpiece to. Um, how did you get connected with him and how did you get on the position to become one of the med advisory board members? Yeah, so um, I wrote a book about 15, 16 years ago um, that was to the consumer. Warner, Warner did the book. It was called Smile, uh, mm-hmm. the guide to, to smile beauty. And it was a book very much as a guide to health of the mouth and, and having a beautiful smile. Um, and uh, Dr. Oz Mehmet wrote um, um, kind of a review in the back, you know, and I got to know him. He became a patient. And um, he said to me one day, you know, I'm, I'm starting a TV show and I'd like you to be the oral health expert on the show. Oh, wow. I said, I'd be, I'd be honored. And, uh, and that's what I did. You know, um, Mehmet is, uh, is an amazing physician. He's an amazing person. Uh, he, he started a, uh, an amazing organization called Health Corps that educates young people all about the health of their body and making a difference in their lives. It's an amazing organization. But I'm very honored to, to uh, share with the public the things that I learned about uh, oral health and dentistry. We did a number of makeover shows. We did a number of shows about taking care, but with really cool animations of what is like in the mouth and why we need to have a great home care habits and what are the important things you need to know besides the obvious things which is fundamentally around nutrition or controlling stress or managing stress in your life 
Um, so it's a, it a wonderful op uh, opportunity. Uh, and I always enjoy speaking to the public and, and sharing, sharing ideas. And that led to a certain number of things. I was the oral health expert for uh, Oral-B, P&G, and I was oral health expert for a period of time for GSK. <clears throat> At the same time, you know, was founder of, of, of my own company. So I was very mm -hmm. fortunate to be able to do, do all those things. It's truly amazing. So from a patient POV and to the listeners out there, I was curious, how does one know if they are with a good dentist and practice in modern time? What would you, what is your recommendation for that? Yeah. So the number one things you really want to look at in the first book that we wrote, we talked, we had a chapter dedicated. How does a lay person know they're in a good dental practice? And we're, when you really come down to it, it's four letters. It's C-A-R-E. Does that dentist and his team, do they care? Do they care about the well-being of their patient? Because if they care about the well-being of their patient and their focus is on their patient, their focus is also on their team. So when you are focused on your team and you can deliver care at a high level, because dentistry is a team sport. You, you can't be a solo player in, in dentistry. Yeah. And if you're focused on delivering the best patient experience possible, joined with the best science, the most knowledgeable science, and creating that type of experience where you take care of your patient's fears, you diagnose them, you share responsibility with specialists, you, you have the best technology that's possible to be out there, you're in a great office. And these offices are, are around more today than ever before because of innovation that lives in every industry today. Dentistry is, is, is an amazing uh, uh, healthcare discipline to be in today because of our new digital world, because of how fast computational science is and how much more we know about inflammation and the health of the human body, which translates, of course, to the human mouth with the microbiome and the bacterial balancing act in the mouth, just like the importance of the bacterial balancing act in the gut. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, you're in a great office when it, all of those pieces are together, the staff, the team, the technology, the patient experience, the communication style, you, you know, you're in the right environment like you know when you're not in the right environment. You're in an environment Absolutely. where it, it, the healthcare professional has disrespect for this team, when there's tension in the air, where there's old technology, you're not in a good place. And, that, and it just translates like that. And so as obvious as that might sound, I think it, it, it's very true for a number of the disciplines in healthcare. How do I know I'm in the right place? For sure. I like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that be? Maybe something you've learned or regret, just anything. Mm. You know, I have to share, I have to share this thought with you who, uh, uh, an old dear friend of mine who built an amazing business, he shared with me. And what he says, he says, when you, dream big and you think you're dreaming big dream bigger because if you do it with the people that you love and respect that is when the magic happens and i've always 
I really believe that. When you surround yourself with people who are like-minded and you set a really, really big vision, whatever industry, whatever you're going to do, everything is possible. Everything is possible. Amazing. Well, Doc, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out JBLNYC at JBLNYC.com and GlowScience at GlowScience.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.